G'day listeners, it's your pal PJ Frightful with another terrifying story to tell. You know when you mix oil and murder, the results can be like death warmed over. Brock Morgan and Jim Hutch were drilling in the freezing Arctic when they finally struck oil. Because of the sub-zero temperatures, the oil merely trickled out rather than spouting into the air dramatically. Brock couldn't believe his luck. If the pool beneath their claim was as big as Hutch calculated, Brock would soon be a millionaire. Hutch corrected him. Of course they would both be millionaires. And Brock was like, yeah, of course, that's what I meant. I'm totally willing to share the riches. And then they stared at each other suspiciously. That night, those blokes, they set up their sleeping bags extra close to the campfire to keep from freezing, even though the fire should keep any wildlife from venturing too close to them. Hutch still found it prudent to sleep with his hands on his rifle. Maybe it wasn't the wildlife he was worried about. Eventually, Hutch did fall asleep. He would never wake up. In the night, Brock snuck away to build a second campfire, 30 feet away. Then he buried the original fire in snow. The sub-zero cold set in immediately, and Jim Hutch froze to death during the night. The next morning, Brock Morgan woke feeling good about the murder he'd committed. Good that there was no evidence of violence or foul play. Hutch's death would look like accidental freezing to anyone who investigated. What Brock felt even better about, though, was all the rich oil in the ground beneath his feet. He started up the drill and got to work. Before long, the drill's engines generated enough heat that it started to defrost the frozen corpse. As rigor mortis set in, Hutch's finger pulled the trigger of his rifle. A shot rang out so loud in the Arctic waste that it caused an avalanche. The snow came down on Brock, trapping him, just as the drill finally broke through and the oil came shooting out of the ground like a geyser. But when the oil rained down again, it formed a pool, a pool that steadily rose over Brock's head. He screamed for help, but there was no one to save him from drowning in the oil he had killed to possess. Death Warmed Over was written by Carl Wessler, drawn by E.R. Cruz, and edited by Jack Harris. It originally appeared in Unexpected, issue 190. The book has a March-April 1979 cover date. What do you think, listeners? Pretty scary stuff, huh? Well, as I said before, I'm PJ Frightful, the same host of Midnight, the podcasting hour that you've always heard. No need to adjust your earbuds or speakers. We've got a tolerable episode for you this time. Later on, Ryan Daly is going to stoke the wrath of the Spectre with Mike Gillis from Radio vs. The Martian. But before that, Ryan and Rob Kelly are going to cover some issue of Swamp Thing or some shit. This one features an evil demagogue who's using fear to incite his people to violence, so I'm sure Ryan and Rob will keep their personal politics out of the way. That story is coming right after this short promo break, so don't go away, or else... I'm sorry, that sounded more threatening than I meant. Uh, just keep listening to the show, not because I told you to, but because you like it. And if you don't, you're going to regret it. call him Zimmy, but the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ryan Daly, and joining me this time is a frequent returning guest and one of the founders of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Please welcome Rob Kelly back to the show. Hello, Rob. Hello, Ryan. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, You get to hear me say one of my favorite things to say as a podcaster, which is we're here to talk about an issue of Swamp Thing. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Specifically, Rob and I will be discussing Swamp Thing issue five from the original series. Uh, If you can remember, years ago, I covered the first two issues with Ben Avery, covered issue three with Siskoid, and issue four with Herman Lowe. That brings us up to issue five, which is another one of my favorites in this classic Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson run. Rob, what is your history or your experience with the Swamp Thing character? Does it date back as far as the series, or...? Uh, I mean, this book had come and gone by the time I was buying comics, but Swamp Thing was around. You know, he was a team up star. And I remember I kind of remember being in um, Challenges of the Unknown for some reason. Yeah, he was. Uh, Yeah. And then um, I, I saw the movie. Certainly, I remember my dad taking me to see the movie, and I bought the Saga, the Swamp Thing series. And then, of course, they did Swamp Thing on my beloved video comic show. In fact, these these very issues. So, uh, and, and then I did manage to find some of the um, Bernie Wrights and Len Mean comics as back issues when I started going to comic shops for the first time. So he's always been around. I've always been you know, cognizant of, of who he is, and I've always liked him as a character. This is the first I have ever heard of video comics. Have we, have we talked about that? <laughs> I love this joke that transcends whatever show you're doing. It just travels from show to show. It's it's wonderful. Yes, I can go into the whole history of video comics if you would like to derail the show for a moment. If you haven't done it before, I mean, if, if there's somewhere else that people can go to hear about that, we'll leave it for that. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, okay. Well, as I said, this is Swamp Thing Issue 5. It has a July-slash-August 1973 cover date and a $0.20 cover price. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was April 5th, 1973. If you want to follow along, this issue has been reprinted in DC Special Series number 17, uh, which reprinted issues 5 through 7, and that's what I have here in front of me. Also, the Roots of the Swamp Thing issue 3, which reprinted the same three issues. Swamp Thing Dark Genesis trade paperback. Secrets of the Swamp Thing trade paperback from 2005, which reprinted the first ten issues in digest size, which Rob gave me a long time ago. Root, <laughs> Roots of the Swamp Thing hardcover and trade paperback, as well as the Swamp Thing The Bronze Age Omnibus Volume 1 hardcover and softcover versions. I'm going through all of these to mention that, oh yes, it's also available digitally on Comixology and the DC Universe app. I'm mention all of those to say, Rob, why the hell was there never a treasury edition of Swamp Thing? Oh, I, I know. It is so... I mean, I'm going to only guess this because Swamp Thing just wasn't that big of a seller that they didn't do it, but it is it is so tragic that these comics never got that treatment. And you would think that... I mean, DC had stopped doing the treasuries by 1982, but you would have thought maybe with the movie coming out, it might have been a nice thing to do. It, it's, it's, it's definitely one of the missed opportunities because obviously Bernie Wrightson's work... It looks gorgeous at any size, but seeing it even bigger would have been just amazing. There's a Bernie Wrightson Artist Artifact Edition that I think IDW puts those out. Um, and last summer, I almost pulled the trigger and got that uh, when it was actually somewhat discounted. And I kind of, I'm like, oh, should I have gotten that? Should I not? I'm, I'm sure I would have loved it. But at the same time, I'm not sure I need to spend that chunk of change just at that moment. I have a Bernie Wrightson drawn monsters coloring book that is treasury sized and it is a uh, yeah it's all just black and white line art of different monsters and it's it's a it's a curious little book but boy is it is it beautiful. Nice. Nice. Sir. 
the cover for this issue by Wrightson shows the Swamp Thing about to wail on a man as half a dozen others surround him. The people bear torches, pitchforks, shovels, and axes. I love the fact that you can never tell what year these stories take place based on oh, yeah. the covers. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's angry villager stuff, and in the background we see a woman tied to a tree. What do you think of this cover? I think it's a great it's a great cover. I just I love that there's no um there's no cover copy. It's just the image of Swamp Thing just wailing on a bunch of villagers. My favorite part though is the guy at the bottom left whose nose has just been smashed in, I guess, by Swamp Thing, and he's bleeding all over the rock. I can't tell you how many times I looked at this cover and not noticed that guy until this point. I was like, Oh, that guy just got it from Swamp Thing really bad. My one minor critique, and this is not Rison's fault, this is presumably the cover, is why Swamp Thing's logo is in a box. Like why they just didn't let the color, uh, the, those that nice uh, yellow, orange, red sky just be a, a gradient all the way up. I, I hate the fact that you've got that line there. They did that uh, with the whole series. Yeah, like I don't his, know why they did all that. All the covers, yeah. they were like that. They were more almost squared off covers like with the images and then like the the title was just a completely separate thing yeah yeah i don't know why you i mean considering that they you've got swamp things arm mm-hmm. you know, moving up and past the 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 frame you really could have just put in the, whoever colored this just could have made that orange just go all the way to the top that's the one tiny little piece i don't like about but otherwise it's a gorgeous image because of course it is yeah I, I i like it too i love how the the looks of the the terror the anger on the guys and just like how misshapen swamp thing is i think that's more than anything like just and his rib cage is like way, way sticking out. Yeah, right, it's right. Really, like, just weird like anatomy. This, this massive lump on his back, like something is coming out of him. It's yeah, it's wonderful. All right, the last of the Raven Wind Witches is written by Len Wein, illustrated by Bernie Wrightson, lettered by Gaspar Saladino, and edited by Joe Orlando. Scotland and his battle with the macabre werewolf, the Swamp Thing sneaks aboard a freighter bound for the United States. Despite his efforts to remain hidden, the crew notices him and, thinking he's just some normal stowaway, they confront him on the deck. When they're close enough to realize he's no ordinary snowway but a hulking green monster, one of the men panics and impales Swamp Thing with a harpoon. Although painful, the harpoon doesn't seem to have done any real damage to Swamp Thing. Angered, he lashes out at the man and the rest of the crew gangs up on him. Swamp Thing escapes by jumping ship and plunging into the freezing cold Atlantic Ocean. As the water carries him away, he flashes back to the events that led him here since the end of the last issue. Eventually, he regains consciousness just in time for the current to have carried him to the shore and the waves slam him into the rough and jagged rocks off the eastern seaboard. In the woods near the coast where Swamp Thing washed up, a black-haired woman named Rebecca Ravenwind runs for her life along with her kid brother Timothy. They take shelter in a cave near the bluffs overlooking the ocean. Hiding there, Rebecca and Timothy watch their hunters, a group of men led by one called Gideon, run by without finding them. But before the siblings can feel safe, they are shocked to see the mucky form of Swamp Thing rise from a pool in the cave. Swamp Thing staggers over to them and then passes out from his long journey through the sea and the rocks. While unconscious, the monster dreams of his past life as Dr. Alec Holland and his wife Linda, and the tragedy that took her life and transformed him into the Swamp Thing. He wakes to find the Ravenwind siblings still there, looking over him. Though she doesn't know who or what he is, Rebecca introduces herself and her slow-witted brother, who may be on the spectrum, 
She tells Swamp Thing they're on the run from Gideon and his followers who believe that Rebecca is a witch. When the coast is clear, Rebecca and Timothy head out. Swamp Thing feels compelled to go with them to protect them, but soon they are discovered by Gideon and his men, who think Swamp Thing is a hell-spawned demon summoned by the witch Rebecca. Gideon's largest, strongest follower, a brute of a man named Jocko, approaches Rebecca while brandishing a scythe. Swamp Thing tries to stop him, but Jocko cracks Swamp Thing along the head with the handle of the scythe. Then, turning it around, he swings the sharpened blade down, cutting off Swamp Thing's arm. The monster that was once Alec Holland gasps at the stump of his very arm, even more shocked at the wanton act of violence by the fact that it didn't actually hurt him. With his one remaining hand, Swamp Thing throttles Jocko. At Gideon's order, one of the men throws his lantern like a Molotov cocktail. It explodes, igniting a fire right next to Swamp Thing. The blaze reminds Swamp Thing of the similar inferno that sent Alec Holland screaming into the swamp where his life would be forever changed. Scared and confused, Swamp Thing backs away from the fire, takes a bad step too close to the cliff, and plummets hundreds of feet down into the breaking waves of the ocean. With the demon defeated, Gideon orders his men to take Rebecca and Timothy back to the village of Divinity, Maine, a community of less than 100 God-fearing people whose main commodity is fear and ignorance. They put young Timothy in a holding cell and take Rebecca to court to stand trial. As the raven winds are separated, Timothy tells his sister not to worry that their friend will save them. During the trial, Rebecca is accused of witchcraft by the townspeople who don't understand why she rejects their arcane social practices and why her garden thrives when they can't grow anything. Gideon, acting as lead prosecutor, tells of how his great ancestors burned the first Ravenwind witches hundreds of years ago and how that witch cursed his line to always bear one leg. Gideon himself moves with the aid of a wooden leg, just as all of the men in his family have done so before. Against his wife's protestations, Gideon shows his newborn baby to the crowd. The baby has one misshapen lump for its left leg. That is enough evidence to condemn Rebecca to be burned at the stake. Meanwhile, Swamp Thing washes up from the shore again, his severed arm completely regrown. Realizing the bio-restorative formula in his system can heal him from such damage, Swamp Thing heads to the nearby village of Divinity to find the Ravenwinds and punish the townspeople. A group of boys have gathered at the jail, taunting young Timothy through the bars of his cell window. Swamp Thing catches the boys by surprise. They scream in terror and run away. Swamp Thing reassures Timothy that everything will be alright, just as Timothy told his sister. Then the monster grabs the bars and rips them from the window, taking a large chunk of the stone wall with them. Timothy climbs out of the cell and climbs up on Swamp Thing's back. They race to the hilltop at the edge of town to save Rebecca. There, Rebecca has been tied to a tree. She pleads with Gideon not to execute her for his family's genetic condition, but he refuses to listen. When the inhuman Swamp Thing arrives, Gideon uses that as further evidence of her satanic power. The townsfolk descend on Swamp Thing, stabbing him with pitchforks and hacking away with hatchets, while Gideon sets the kindling at the base of the tree on fire. Swamp Thing fights through the swarm of people, the formula repairing the damage to his body almost as soon as the people inflict it, until he hears the screams of Rebecca when the flames race up toward her. Quickly, Swamp Thing rushes to the tree. Unable to go into the flame to untie her, he instead uses his formidable strength to rip the tree clean out of the ground, roots and all. Timothy unties his sister as Swamp Thing prepares to defend them from Gideon's second attack. 
but Rebecca tells the monster that she will handle things from here. She accuses Gideon of using the town's fear and superstition to keep himself in power. He hurls a pitchfork, intending to kill her. Rebecca waves a hand, and the pitchfork disappears. Then she reaches toward the sky, and storm clouds suddenly appear. Lightning flashes and thunder roars, and in an instant, the hateful people of divinity have all been transformed into flowers peppering the grassy hillside. Rebecca explains to the Swamp Thing that she never lied to him or to Gideon, that she is not a witch despite the events that just occurred. The magic power belongs to her brother. Timothy is the last of the Raven Wind witches, and Rebecca is merely his familiar, the focus of his power. Then the siblings walk off together to start a new life in Boston, leaving Swamp Thing alone once again. Somewhere else in New England, a pair of lovers stand on a porch in the moonlight, commenting on the weather and flirting. Why would we care about these two? Well, they look exactly like and share the same names as Alec and Linda Holland. To be continued. Alrighty, Rob. Thank you for bearing with that long <laughs> recap. Uh, what did you think of the story? This is great. I really love the story. I mean, I think I mentioned in another uh, episode of this show, show that um, I like how uh, for the first five or six, seven, actually pretty much all the rights and issues of Swamp Thing, mm-hmm. that Lynn Ween is sort of having Swamp Thing just go through all the different monsters, like all the different <laughs> genres. Like it's like he, he meets like a werewolf in one and here's this episode is about witches and later on he'll meet like a Cthulhu monster. And then there's another one where he takes on a robot. Lynn Ween was almost, I could just see him like this mental roller just saying like okay what's every horror movie setup we can do that has Swamp Thing meet so this is the witch issue uh, I will say it took me way too many rereadings of this issue to realize that the name of these characters are Raven Wind not Raven Wood because yeah. I just you know I hear Raven Raven something I'm like oh Marion Ravenwood but uh, no this is a great story I love the, the, the that it's you know the switch is that, of course, it's you know she's not a witch, but then she sort of is. I like, uh, as you mentioned, we have no idea where and when this sort of takes place. When they go back to this town, it looks like it's Frankenstein times, and yet it's clearly the 1970s. Uh, so I, I mean, these people are just super, super, you know, superstitious and retrograde, and you know they're totally like and the lockdown. You know, I mean that that's that crowd, and so uh, I just think this is I, this is just a total. Winner, and I am almost not almost. I am actually a little sorry we never saw these two ever again because I like these characters a lot. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I, it sets them up like they could, and uh, yeah, I mean everything you say. I, I like. I mean, it's each one of the stories in the series jumps from one type of classic monster story, from like the Frankenstein monster to the werewolf story, and now we get the kind of like Salem witch trials and the burning right. thing, and. And yeah, we. I mean, this is uh, this is a great sort of twist on the the morality play, which is where we find out that the true monster is not the one that looks different from the people. It's the monster is the intolerance and the fear in the hearts of people. Um, I'm wondering if there's if they were going for a lesson or or just it was just the easiest way to wrap things up or the most visually dynamic that at the end of this story the people's hearts can't be turned by reason or they, they can't be confronted. They just have to be wiped out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like, kind of on board there... for that, <laughs> to be honest with you. Ah. 
gosh, you know, I mean, I, I try to be compassionate, but yeah, there's some people. Times when, <laughs> they just yeah. they will burn everything to the ground before they ever admit that they're wrong. And uh, I like that. I like Swamp Things. Is like, all right, yeah, I just gotta. I'm gonna rip this tree out of the ground. We're gonna and, and the you know we're gonna we're gonna turn you all into flowers, and, and the world is better off. I like it. I mean, yeah. said these, these two really could have gotten a backup strip in Swamp Thing if they decided to like reduce the page count. Maybe so, like Ryson could crank out the pages. I really would have loved to have seen these two have little their little witchy adventures. There's also not a real story reason for them to separate. I, I, I guess, you know, kind of a problem is we don't know what Swamp Thing's agenda is, like why he's going home or what he hopes to accomplish. Like, presumably he's trying to get back to the swamp, but I don't know how late into the series it's ever explained that like he thinks he, if he can get back to his lab, he might be able to reverse this because... I mean, it is kind of weird that he was just, like, right off the bat, he was taken away. He was taken to Eastern Europe, and he's had to travel back. I, I, do, I like the detail that, you know, at the start of this, like with any comic book character, no matter how monstrous you look, if you put on a trench coat and a fedora, you can blend in. <laughs> yeah. it, worked for, it worked for Ben Grimm. It worked for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I think Godzilla tried that one. <laughs> uh, but it only works up to a point, because he does get caught. Um, right from the first page, uh, I mean, I, I just want to hit like a few little beats of the art. I love the look of the the guy in the bottom right corner uh, doing the classic comic book thing where he's looking right at the reader and screaming. <laughs> That's like the guy from uh, the corner of Action Comics number one with his hands over his head. He's like, ah, <laughs> Superman smashing a car. Ah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, on the um, the first Gene Colan issue of uh, Wonder Woman, because I because I have oh right yeah the same guy there's a guy doing that the guy who kind of looks like Roy Thomas I'm not sure if he was meant to be but yeah (laughs) and nobody's stopping her this time (laughs) exactly yeah oh yeah Wrightson kills it and the the very next page the one where Swamp Thing gets dunked into the water and the the panel um, Swamp Thing's face is only like it's just his face is poking up out of the water with his hand and we see the ship in the background like all that cross hatching. That he's doing, and it's a, it's a um. There's no panel border, so it's all. It kind of looks like a um a spot illustration you would see in like an old timey book. It's again the the amount of detail that Wrightson was putting into these things, knowing that the printing process was so bad, uh, is just un you know. Un, he must have been doing it mostly to entertain himself because he had to know that half of this detail would not even show up. I mean, he didn't know that the thing would be reprinted four thousand times after that. But I, I can only imagine when he got these comics back how disappointing it must have been to see some of the line work just completely disappear under the, the, the grubby newsprint. Yeah, the, yeah. I was looking at the same same panel, that same image with like the hatching of the sky, but also like the line to convey the, the waves and the crashing wave. Like in, instead of using like a, an ink or a color effect to create that, like that reminds me of like an image from his Frankenstein adaptation yes, yeah. that he did with those giant prints for the pages. Yeah, I really dig those. Um, uh, jumping forward, I love like the details of the town once they get to Divinity, like this tiny like New England town that does look like it's something two hundred years older. Um, because I've seen towns like that. <laughs> you drive through, it's like, what year is this? Um, and like the the expression on Gideon's face, you know, when in the trial when he's holding up his child and everything like that, like. Right, I I love Wrightson because he didn't have the standard. Everybody looks great, bodies and forms. Oh yeah, people are um, malformed big time in his world. Yeah, yeah. There's just, there's just a crudeness and a natural ugliness that really jumps out at you, and it's perfect for this story where the people are the ugly ones. Yeah. The panel where he reveals the baby with the the malformed leg. 
uh, and it, like, he's like screaming, and we see some, there's almost like a like foam in his mouth. And I love the the three or four people in the foreground, and they're colored uh, in one <laughs> color. Like they're you know, good lord, choke! It's that kind of thing. That's a that's a great reveal. And I also have to say the 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 witch, the Ravenwood witch, uh, Rebecca. I mean, she is she's got it going on. I mean, hamina <laughs> hamina. Yes, yes, she looks great in that slinky oh, like, that man, dress that yeah. really clings to her and shows off everything. And she's got she's got a plunging neckline too. He draws really great curvy women, you know. I mean, I mean they're obviously built really well, but like they're not bone thin. Like they actually have hips and stuff like that. He he was yes. really good at that. She is she is gorgeous. Page eighteen, we get a panel that is similar to the cover, mm-hmm. where you get like the whole like the mountain of men, like the just the arrangement where you see the people like 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 they're coming out of the corner and like coming up as if they're like climbing on top of each other to get to him, and he's lifting one guy up by the throat, and there's a pitchfork already stuck in his <laughs> chest, and he's like pulling it out. Uh, I, love I, lo- I love the guy's got a club that looks like a giant chicken leg. <laughs> it's all malformed. Like, what wood looks like that? Like, what is that? It looks like he went to like, a KFC bucket. And he's trying to hit something with it. <laughs> this, in terms of just progression of the story and the character, like, by the time we get to this, this is really one of the first times where we see the invulnerability of of Swamp Thing. I mean, from in the first issue, like there were people like shooting at him that there didn't seem to be much of an effect. But that was kind of ambiguous about like, well, we didn't see like are the bullets ripping into them? What's going on? Now we see, okay, he can be stabbed by these weapons and it just heals itself. He can have his arm cut yeah. off Ugh. and it will regrow. We're also getting like this is up until this point, and, it, and it's part of it is just because of the shape of the word balloons. And I don't know if this was uh, Gaspar's choice or if this was something that Bernie Wrightson was doing within the art or if this was in the script. Up until now, it's it's still kind of been ambiguous whether or not Swamp Thing speaks aloud or if his word balloons are uh, just thoughts. And here, the way he's interacting with the Ravenwinds, I, I, I think we do know for sure now he's actually communicating with them. Um, but I don't know if it's been clear before this. Well, doesn't isn't it wasn't isn't it the first issue where he yells stop? Isn't this and he yell that at some point? I think it's when they crashes into the oh. car. I think that's like that's like the first time he speaks where he actually finds a stop. But he, oh, but you yeah, get the sense yeah. that it's like he can talk, but it just takes a whole lot of effort, uh, so he doesn't do right, it very much. Right? Yeah, yeah. But the, yeah, but there were other times where he was like he would be like kind of voicing, almost expositing out loud, and it's like, is this? Is this just a thought balloon for for the conveyance for for explanation, or is he talking? Because the characters weren't always necessarily interacting with what he was saying. Of course, based on his appearance, you would. He has a very expressive so. face, so people can understand yeah. what he's thinking. On page fifteen, the three panels of the kids taunting Timothy through the bars <laughs> like that, running along the middle with that little brat right in the center. Little bastard, the yeah, yeah. And Swamp Thing peeking his head around the corner, like that little like, triptych of images, uh, and all the kids f- seeing him and running before the the main bully does. Ah, oh, gosh, yeah, just like that that middle shot of that kid, like what a rotten little kid! You can just tell, like <laughs> for being for having like this, you know, he's just a little child. He's a little blonde haired kid. He just has this like nastiness of his eyebrows and the shading. Well, it writes in very much like uh, kind of like in, when Stanley Kubrick wanted to make someone look menacing. They did the whole looking up through their brow shot, you know, like it did in, <laughs> he did in Full Metal Jacket. He did in The Shining and writes in when when someone wants to be really ominous, he casts a very heavy shadow. So their eyes are just dark shadow. Just you just nothing but like these dark holes. So the first panel with that kid, his eyes are just black. 
you know, black little shadows where he's got the ball. And then he pulls that same trick again when uh, when Rebecca turns finally into the witch, where she says, I'll take over now. And we see her eyes become that same black shadow. So that was something he he used as a, as a visual shorthand. was like, oh, something's going down. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, any other thoughts on this one? Uh, so otherwise, like I said, it's a shame that these characters were never brought back in any history of Swamp Thing. I mean, how many different iterations of the series have there been that no one's ever thought to, mm-hmm. to bring Rebecca in this little kid? In fact, you could do it where Rebecca has since passed on and the kid has grown up, you know, and now yeah. he's like a he's like a full on warlock kind of thing. That would have been kind of cool. But uh, but but anyway, as a as a one off, I just say it's a really great story. And like I said, I remember they did this on video comics. And I'm trying to think of like, did they really do the part with the malformed kids leg on a children's show on Nickelodeon? But I guess they did because I can I can still hear it in my head of like the, the narrator going the last of the Raven Wind. Which is I can still hear it. So I, again, I got to find that someday. I know you've never heard of that show, but it's really awesome. It sounds like it piqued my interest. Yeah, very cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, as this is uh, of the first ten. This this run uh, by Lena writes, and this is one of my favorite issues. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed talking about this one. Thank you for that. Where else can people find you on the Fire and Water Network? Uh, well, as you said, I'm part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and I host shows like uh, the JLI Wahaha Podcast, uh, Ohat Munat, and the Mirror Factory. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, that's going to be reused. <laughs> All right, folks. We are going to take a short promo break right now, but we will be back with a new tale of the Spectre. Don't go away. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And we want to ask you an important question. Are you sick and tired of other panel discussion shows wasting your time droning on and on about foreign policy, economics, and human rights? Or do you want to hear conversations about things that actually matter? We host a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians. Every month we gather a panel of our nation's finest minds and plunge a rusty prison shank into the heart of tough questions that have an impact on the lives of real people like you. Like, are drivers required to pull over for the Ghostbusters? Is the United Federation of Planets actually an oppressive dictatorship run by guidance counselors? Is Arnold Schwarzenegger secretly a genius? And are we being mean when we laugh at movies that are so bad they're good? So write your congressman and let them know that Radio vs. the Martians is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on RadioVsTheMartians.com. We're back, and joining me this time is a very good friend of the Fire and Water Network, the co-host of Radio vs. the Martians. Please welcome Mike Gillis. What's up, Mike? Not much. Not much. Still staying indoors. (laughs) As are we all. Uh, And since we're indoors, we've got nothing better to do than cover this story uh, from the classic Spectre run from Fleischer and Aparo. But before we get to that... I know you've seen a ton of horror movies, and they range from the classic and terrifying Romero zombie flicks to the totally ludicrous assassin droids that haunt shopping malls after they close, um, and everything probably in between. Where does the horror, like as a genre, where does horror fall for you? What's your sweet spot? I don't think I really have a sweet spot. It's kind of a wide range. Uh, I like all sorts of horror, and I'm not somebody who grew up with it. I mean, it was never in my house. Or if it was, it was cut with another genre. So like Terminator and Alien, 
they had sci-fi elements, Predator. Uh, these were all kind of – I was blinded by that part of it. But I don't think I really fell in love with the horror franchise until the Evil Dead series in high school. And then that sort of opened up again. I ca- it came to me in waves. Then I had my Romero zombie wave, and then I had my 80s slasher movie wave. I discovered Lovecraft probably about 10 to 15 years ago. And even just this last year, my girlfriend kind of gave me the nudge to finally start reading Stephen King. And I mean, I was familiar with movies based on his properties, but yeah, it it just kind of comes to me in these moments. Um, Even in terms of comics, there are some great horror comics out there. The old uh, Bernie Wrights and Swamp Thing stuff. I love the Alan Moore run on the book. Even Sandman, when it started, was kind of a horror book that sort of transitioned into sort of a fantasy title. And uh, one I'm a real fan of, and I know I recommended this to you, is there's a horror manga uh, creator named Junji Ito, Mm -hmm. who may write some of the most unsettling stuff that I've ever read, including like Uzumaki and Gyo. And that might be one of my sweet spots because it genuinely upsets me in places and I'll just be going about my day. I finished reading it a while ago. And suddenly an image from one of his manga will pop (laughs) into my head and I'll have this shudder just go through me. And it's kind of nice. I think that's that's what I I like about horror that sometimes has that delayed reaction and just gets in your head. It gets a hook in you. Yeah, I got Uzumaki. I haven't I I mean, I basically read the first five pages. Uh, and I had to table it, not because I wasn't enjoying it, just, I mean, at that point, it was way too soon to get a sense, but um, I w- I'm looking forward to it, but I just had to table it because I had to prioritize other things. Um, but yeah, I also got the manga adaptations by Gao Tanabe, Tanabe? I'm not sure if, how I'm pronouncing it. I think it's Tanabe. Um, he did, he's done a couple of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft stories, um, some shorts, um, but one of them was a two-volume full adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. And I thought his adaptation was incredible. I mean, they, I mean, if they've been talking about having you know Guillermo del Toro adapting that story or another H.P. Lovecraft thing for a long time, and that's always been something where I'm like... The visuals in in Lovecraft's work are so particular mm-hmm. and and sort of specific that if you don't get them just right, then you don't. Then I mean, it's it has to be a really creepy, unsettling horror that sticks in your mind more than just the visceral. Oh, that's a gross monster. You know, there there has to be something that just like seems like it's out of sync with reality that really just bends your mind a little bit. And I didn't know if they could do that in a movie. Guillermo del Toro, probably as much as anybody else alive that I can think of, could basically possibly stand the best chance in terms of Western directors. But this manga, I highly recommend it. What he does with the the shapes and the the architecture in this unreal city that it's just Oh, it's just a fascinating dive into this, and I was devouring that one. I love that one so much. So, and just based on that, you were kind of like, "Yeah, Uzumaki, you're <laughs> you're ready to take yes. the next step." After yeah. that, one. so that's I'm looking forward to that. I will say, for somebody who wants to try Junji Ito stuff, especially Uzumaki, right now in the world of the the <laughs> quarantine, um, try to cut it with something fun. Maybe Jeff Smith's Bone, <laughs> yeah. or maybe the Jimmy Olsen book that's coming out, mm-hmm. because it is really unnerving it is it is lovecrafty and it has that sense of impending and overwhelming doom that you're 
going to be spiraling into literally spiraling into madness or death and a sense of feeling trapped and just just as a warning a lot of people might not be ready for that right now <laughs> it is very very good and sometimes it's almost too good at what it does oh man that book will get you it'll mess with your brain uh, then getting back to the specter of it all, uh, something else that you've talked about on your podcasts uh, is sort of the revenge story as a genre. Um, and and I think that as much as horror, the Fleischer and Apiro specter run was a revenge fantasy in a sense because it was conceived by Joe Orlando after he was mugged like for the seventh time or something in New York. And he was just pissed off and he wanted to exact some righteous vengeance on people. Looking at this genre, like where do you think like this character of the Spectre kind of falls in with that revenge fantasy? Well, I think it's kind of like you mentioned, the sort of intersection of these two genres. Well, there's horror. He's a supernatural character who sort of intercedes into the stories of these terrible people doing terrible things. And in that way, it's it reminds me a lot of an old EC horror comic like Tales from the Crypt, where in those stories, the main character is actually a terrible person who commits crimes or kills people, is greedy, is somebody who does awful things to other human beings. And there usually is a supernatural twist that sort of comes in in the form of like a monster or a curse or they fall victim to their own hubris and usually die in just a horribly gory, ironic way. So that really plays a role in these Spectre stories. But like you mentioned, the sort of dirty, hairy, death wish revenge films, where uh, you basically get to see the worst kind of criminals. And you see that in, in all of these Spectre stories, which is that these are not simply people who want to like rob the bank and and move on with it. These are monstrous villains. They kill people because it's fun. They laugh about it. They have no compunction about just opening up on like a random person on the street with a machine gun trying to hit a cop. They don't care. They seem to want to maximize their body count. It's like they're playing Grand Theft Auto. And that when you have bad guys like that, that's so that you don't feel bad when the Spectre does the thing to them that he's going to do. <laughs> it's why you give Dirty Harry and, and and the character from all of these movies, whether it's, you know, Sylvester Stallone and Cobra, Charles Bronson and Death Wish, why you don't feel bad when they do things that you would be horrified if Batman did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, then you, uh, you kind of set it up. So let us get into Adventure Comics 435. This is actually back when it was the, the masthead said weird Adventure Comics once this one took over. Uh, this sports a September slash October 1974 cover date. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on sale date was June 25th that year. The book cost 20 cents and features a cover by Jim Aparo, which depicts the specter materializing out of a flame of a lamp to surprise an armed man, while in the background a woman tied to a chair and gagged can look on only in shock. What do you think of the cover? It's Jim Aparo, so it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm i a big fan. I think that one thing Jim Aparo does, and this is something that carries throughout the, the entirety of this book and carries into his Batman work, is this guy does uh, motion incredibly well. You know, comic books have the the disadvantage, if you could call it, of being a, a stationary medium. Mm-hmm. That 
uh, you have to make a bunch of still images look like they're moving, but not only that, carry your eye from one panel to the other. And Jim Aparo's always been a master of that. His stuff always looks fluid. Um, I don't think, aside from architecture, there are almost any straight lines in a Jim Aparo book <laughs> because everything is moving, everything is zipping, everything bends into the motion. And you really see this here. I mean, look at the way this guy is being murdered by the specter. I mean, his body is contorting in horrible ways. He is terrified. This, like, poor, uh, this poor woman is going to be traumatized by what she sees him get done to him. The exaggerated facial expressions that Aparo brings to, like, that guy's jaw is, uncla- is unhooking at the hinge. Like, it's for him to yeah. scream that like that, yeah. He's not just grabbing him, he's, like, pulling him backwards, and his, like, spine is bending back, and his mm-hmm. every single part of his body is bent in some way. Yeah. And, yeah, he is, he is really, really dead. Yeah. <laughs> All right, then going on to the story. The Man Who Stalked the Spectre is written by Michael Fleischer with plotting assist from Russell Carley, illustrated by Jim Aparo, and edited by Joe Orlando. And I can finally get it right what the the plotting assist from Russell Carley was. I keep forgetting. I keep reading what it says, and then I keep forgetting, and I say that he did the, like, the breakdowns of the art and everything like that, and that's not what it was. So, basically, when Fleischer took over this book, he had really no comic book experience, or very minimal comic book experience. So, he was plotting this book with his buddy, Russell Carley, and Fleischer was coming up with all of the story beats and all of the dialogue, and they were kind of, like, fleshing these out. And his buddy Russell was the one who was actually able to say, okay, this is what this is how many pages this needs to be. This is how you break it down. This is what a page break is going to look like in order to get the, the reader to turn to the next page. This is how it kind of has to flow. Um, and and because you know Russell wasn't under contract or anything, but Fleischer at the time he really wanted to make sure that this guy's contribution was known by not just the public but by DC. So he was like, we gotta, you know, he he is plotting the thing with me, and they're like, well, we can't call him the writer because that's not what he's doing. That's what we contracted you for. So they made up this sort of weird title of plotting assistant um, to, to fit that for this guy. So, Actually, he, he worked with uh, Michael Fleischer over on his Jonah Hex stuff as, yeah. as well. Yeah. Like, if you look at the first maybe dozen or so Jonah Hex stories that he wrote over in Weird Western Tales, uh, he also had uh, Russell Carley there as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking because I couldn't remember if those overlapped, if he was writing these at the same time or not. It, it the timeline matches up. So I mean, can you imagine that this is like some of his first comic work and it's already classic? <laughs> That's amazing. I uh, mean, and he would go on to continue to write Jonah Hex for like a decade longer. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah. With the exception, I looked this up. With the exception of three issues, he wrote every issue of the ninety-two uh, issue Jonah Hex series. Uh, the 18 issue post apocalypse one that followed, and like the lion's share of the stuff in Weird Western Tales. So, I mean, he has a lot of experience writing stories about heroes that do things that Batman doesn't do. <laughs> Don't tell some of Batman's fans, because some of them certainly think that's right in Batman's wheelhouse. Are we talking about Zack Snyder? I'm not talking about him at all, ever. <laughs> I'm trying not to. I'm trying to wean myself off of that. Zack Snyder is like a gravity well of complaining from me, and I'm trying <laughs> to go cold turkey. All right, then uh, you do that while I tell our listeners what happens in The Man Who Stalked the Spectre. 
the Grandinetti gang rushes to their getaway car after robbing a jewelry store. Jerry Grandinetti sprays machine gun fire to cover their escape. The bullets rip through at least one pedestrian and punch out the windshield of a police car responding to the robbery. The gang races away in their car with the cops in pursuit. The driver loses control and crashes the getaway car. The gang splits up, agreeing to meet at their designated rendezvous in one week's time. Jerry Grandinetti runs to a refrigeration plant and shoots the lock off the door. A pair of cops witness his escape and pursue with caution. Inside, Jerry is startled by a rapid drop in the temperature, and then a cloud of mist in the corner coalesces into the familiar shape of the green-hooded specter. The jewel thief opens fire with his machine gun, but the bullets have no effect. The specter taunts Jerry, and then a cloud of water vapor swirls around the armed man. Moments later, when the cops enter the refrigeration plant, guns drawn, they are shocked to find their quarry completely frozen in a block of ice. Sometime later, freelance magazine writer Earl Crawford reads a newspaper article about Jerry Grandinetti's body being found in a block of ice. He adds the article to a file of similarly-themed news stories, connecting this latest death of the gangland hood with other bizarre and fantastical deaths of evildoers that have thrilled fans of adventure comics for the last couple of issues. Crawford tells his editor at Newsbeat there is some sinister force linking the murders. Though skeptical, the editor gives Crawford permission to investigate further. Later, Crawford is permitted to ride along with Detective Lieutenant Jim Corrigan, who hates the idea. Just as Corrigan is mocking Crawford, telling him that he has little time to play nursemaid while trying to round up the remaining dangerous Grandinetti gang, a report comes over the radio that Mitch Grandinetti has holed up in a toy store and taken four hostages with him. Corrigan and Crawford arrive at the store. A uniformed cop tells them that Mitch Grandinetti is demanding a getaway car and an escape route, otherwise he'll execute his hostages. To show how on edge Mitch is, he pops his head out the front door and squeezes off a couple of shots from his gun. Corrigan tells one of the cops to keep Crawford out of trouble while he circles around the back of the store looking for some way to ambush Grandinetti. Inside the store, a paranoid Mitch threatens his hostages, but becomes distracted by sounds from some of the toys. As he investigates, one of the toys, a small lead figurine of a Viking warrior, becomes possessed by the spirit of the specter. The Viking figure grows to the size of a man and begins to move. Mitch Graninetti only has time to doubt his sanity before a heavy axe comes down on him. Moments later, Jim Corrigan pops out of the store and tells the cops that Mitch Graninetti is gone. As they look around the store, the cops surmise Graninetti must have escaped to the roof. Only Earl Crawford notices a tiny lead figurine of Mitch with an axe in his head. He realizes the same force that froze Jerry Graninetti in ice before and murdered other criminals also must have brought this kind of justice to Mitch. Back at the station, the desk sergeant gives Crawford a message to pass on to Corgan. Crawford reads the note from an informant that the last member of the Grandinetti gang is hiding in an abandoned sawmill. Crawford races out there to warn the man that he's likely the next target of the supernatural force. When he gets there, though, the last Grandinetti catches him and is about to kill him, when suddenly the flames from his kerosene lamp rise and take the shape of the specter. Within moments, the specter turns the last Grandinetti into solid wood, 
and then runs him through the many saw blades, slicing the criminal into twenty wooden slabs. Earl Crawford is mortified at the inhumanity of such a feat and curses the specter's methods. He runs off, heading back to his car, wondering if such a terrible death is truly the justice that Grandinetti deserved. Mike, what did you think of the story? Oh, I love it. I, I, you know, I kind of have these two moods when it comes to uh, comic books. Like one of them is, I want to watch uh, an upright hero be better than me, and I want mm-hmm. to see them do amazing things, but not just you know physically, but morally. And then sometimes I just want to see a bad guy get killed <laughs> in a horribly ironic and and bizarre way. It's the part of me that uh, likes movies like Commando and uh, Total Recall. This is this is definitely in the latter because the Spectre is basically Q from Star Trek: The Next Generation if he had the moral compass of Rorschach from The Watchmen. <laughs> where I mean, he is a good guy, Freddy Krueger. I mean, he he bends reality and just does terrible things to people. You know, like Rorschach doesn't just shoot somebody. He has to push them down an elevator shaft or handcuff them to a radiator and set a building on fire. But now imagine he had like an unlimited special effect budget. And that's where you get the specter. I mean, th- this dude does not fuck around. He, is, <laughs> he, he will find you. And this, this is what I kind of like about these specific stories, because one thing that jumped out at me, and I definitely want to talk about this first is this does not take place in the DC universe. Mm. There is uh, two pieces of dialogue that happen in this. The first yep. one is when uh, Crawford is assigned to work with Corrigan. And uh, Corrigan sort of, you know, he does not, he has no time for this guy, doesn't want this assignment with this guy, and mockingly refers to him as mild manner reporter Clark Kent. Right. Then later when they appear on scene at the hostage situation, um, he introduces uh, the uniformed cop to Crawford as Clark Kent. And the guy goes, whoa, were you really Superman? Uh-huh. So it takes place in a world where Superman's a fictional character. Yeah, because that's the only way anybody would know Clark Kent. <laughs> like if yeah, you have to no know that way. he's Superman for any of those jokes to land. Yeah, so I mean, he's 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 basically sort of approaching it from from that perspective. You know, the the same way that Superman would be a fictional character in the Marvel universe. And I was thinking about that, and I kind of put the Spectre, especially these kind of Spectre stories, into the same category that I put like Jonah Hex and John Constantine and the Punisher. Which is, I don't mind that much when they appear in another character's story, but if the story's about them. I don't want superheroes showing up. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't mind if the Punisher shows up in an issue of Daredevil and Daredevil wags his figure at him because I want Daredevil to be right in that story. But if I'm reading a Punisher story, then Daredevil's a wet blanket and I don't want him raining on my parade. Right. And <laughs> in this case, I don't want somebody like Superman to take my fun away and tell me that I'm not allowed to have fun watching this guy go through a buzzsaw. So I think that's sort of intentional that we're kind of having one sense of separation because we're already kind of pushing the limits of what we can get away with under the comics code. And I'm kind of glad this is a much less superhero universe that these stories seem to take place in. 
and actually, one of the things about the the whole Clark Kent connection that tickles me is um, the way Aparo draws Crawford. He has a very distinctive look, and it's as the series goes on, Crawford comes back for a few more stories, uh, and it becomes more and more. Especially when Aparo and Fletcher came back in the late '80s, they did another set of these stories that are uh, collected in because the, the all these stories were reprinted in a a four issue series called Wrath of the Spectre. The fourth issue was actually all new stories and then these were all collected in the trade paperback Wrath of the Spectre that you can find. Um but the stories from the late 80s Crawford really really looks like how Aparo drew Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne. Like it's 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 kind of funny like the first time I was flipping through this I was like is this is that actually Clark Kent in a Spectre story? This is weird. Um before I actually like read the read the text and the details. So yeah, it's when you have a Spectre who is this powerful, this capable. When he has this, like it's, it is very hard to have him intruding on the larger superhero community without breaking the rules of the universe. You can only do so much. So when he is like this, as you said, he's the the somewhat more noble Freddy Krueger that that terrorizes <laughs> the bad guys instead of the teenagers. Um, when he has that power at his display. It's, I mean, then, like, what do you do when he's with the JSA that he can't do by himself? It's sort of, it's it's hard to, to square that. Um, and he would scare the shit out of those guys. I mean, <laughs> yes. how do they, especially if you're setting up the JSA as they were under, like, Jeff Johns, as, like, they're the ones who mentor new heroes. Mm. How do you explain this guy to somebody like Star Spangled Kid? It's like, oh, yeah, that guy murders people. Well, it's kind of for the reason that I didn't think somebody like this type of character could hold his own ongoing series. But the 90s version by John Ostrander and, and Tom Mandrake made it work, uh, and they kept it separate to a good degree from the others, but it was, I mean, they they made it an ongoing, like, serial adventure, or, like, soap opera type of thing, where, like, you know, the characters had subplots and, and personal strife, and it wasn't just, like, these, like, one-off adventures that you get in these. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, like I mentioned before, the EC Comics connection, it's like take an EC Comics story, but that sort of supernatural twist that turns around on this terrible person and kills them is the continuing hero of the series. That mm-hmm. I think what helps keep a story like this fresh is that, you know, so Spectre doesn't have to be the main character of his own stories. He just has to be the force that shows up, kind of like those old man thing stories. Mm-hmm. That in a lot of ways, the the lead characters, and I guess there's a weird connection here, but kind of like Columbo, where, you know, we typically follow the terrible person doing terrible things and seemingly getting away with it until this character catches up with them. Mm -hmm. And you kind of give yourself permission in these kind of crime stories to watch these people commit rampant, brazen murder and enjoy it because you know they're going to pay for it later. And you kind of get a little bit of a thrill watching them do terrible things. You're like, oh, man, you're going to get it. (laughs) And it's fun, especially with the Spectre, because he kills people in such bizarre ways. I mean, the the sort of setup for these bodies, it kind of reminds me of the killer in the first season of True Detective. I mean, somebody's going to find that sawed-up bad guy and go like, (laughs) what the hell just happened? And and I I mean that is set up from the the opening splash page which I kind of skipped over because it gives away um, within that page on the on the splash you see the granddaddy guy going please don't you've got no right to kill me in that buzzsaw do you hear you've got no right and like it's in that last scene and in this one we actually see Crawford is tied up to a chair basically this is 
the scene kind of mirroring the cover, except on the cover it's a woman tied to the to the chair. So this cover was probably done before the actual story was conceived. But we see, like, the, I mean, the setup is Spectre is going to throw this guy into a, these buzz saws like this, and it's like that is never going to get past any kind of comic code, even if this wasn't a code approved book. Like, you're not going to see all that blood and gore. But we set up, it's like, oh, he turns him into a tree first. He turns him into a block of wood. Well, just becoming a block of wood itself, even though that functionally kills the guy, that's not satisfying enough. That's way too tame. So then the wood has to go through the buzzsaw. Yeah, and sometimes when the Spectre does stuff like this, they will give you a little hint to know that this guy is still conscious and Mm. feels this. I think that they actually – didn't they do that in an episode of Batman Brave and the Bold? It was one of the more shocking things they did where the Spectre turns somebody into a statue made out of cheese and a bunch of rats eat him. And it's clear from his face expression. It doesn't seem like a tear or something Mm -hmm. to let you know this guy is still alive while he's being eaten. And I'm like, how did you get away with this? I mean, the the comics code – I think that we're probably at the point now where they were just allowing these sort of supernatural elements that had been barred for so long. I mean, it's about the same time that I think Morbius and and Blade showed up Mm -hmm. in the comics. And, you know, we're allowed to do things now, so we're going to stretch our legs. Let's see how close to this new line we can get. And I love that opening page. Those old comic book splash pages that kind of give you a flash forward uh, that seems just designed in a lab to take your money i mean jesus christ take my 20 cents now after looking at that i also really love how the smoke coming out of the bad guy's gun is uh, creating the title like the specter the words the specter is the smoke coming out of his gun but i kind of had two weird random thoughts looking at uh, this splash page and the first one was the specter's dirty hairy oh you got you, you got no right to do this to me <laughs> you got no right to kill me in that buzzsaw is such a great sentence um and i just kept thinking of the dirty hairy response of what about the rights of that little girl <laughs> and you know uh, the other the other thought this is the weird joke uh one i had is what if this is a ploy and this bad guy was born and raised in a buzzsaw <laughs> But yeah, I, I love stuff like this because you just you know right off the bat this is not a bad guy who's going to mess around with you. He's just like, oh yeah, the Spectre's going to throw that guy into a buzzsaw. You know, take my money, please. Mm-hmm. But then, and one of the reasons why I, I wanted your opinion on this particular issue is because this story. I mean, this is the fifth story in this run of Spectre stories by this creative team, and for the first time, really, we get a new element from Fleischer we get this voice of objection in The Witness. We get this Crawford character who says, hang on, this is not justice, what you're doing. This is, like, demented, creepy, fetishistic vengeance. But that's not justice for what, like, like, we, we, like you're breaking the system. And for viewers like us, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the reason why we, you know, want to tune into that type of movie or this type of comic is to see when society breaks down, you need to react kind of crazily to it. But here we get the objection saying, no, what you're doing is not right. You need to stop this. This is grotesque murder. You're no better than the villain. And what element do you think that objection adds to the story? Well, it, it's the fun cognitive dissonance I have as a socialist who loves revenge stories, which is that these characters are saying the things that I would say if I if this was real. And they're like, this is wrong. This is messed up. Why are we allowing this? I mean, seriously, does Corrigan not have 
a ton of these situations like the toy store where or this where every case that he covers just ends in bloodbath and nobody ever gets arrested if, if this guy's investigating it everyone's always found or has disappeared i mean but that's the thing is that but again in this story in the context of this in a fictional cartoon world he becomes the wet blanket i'm like why are you trying to ruin the specter's fun um and so you get to become like this different, worse person when you read stories like this. And it's the same thing you get with like the Dirty Harry stories where uh, Dirty Harry violates people's civil rights left and right. He tortures a confession out of a suspect in the first movie by stepping on his bullet wound. And, you know, every one of those people, those those people, that, you know, that are screaming at him is superiors is like and you're like, those people are right. Those people are right. You are a monster. You should go to prison right now. But, you know, we're cheering this guy on because he gets to exist in a cartoon universe where everyone who breaks the law is like a kill crazy psychopath who's just like, gun, and yeah, I mean, you have that sort of situation where it's like, this is what like Ted Cruz thinks the city is like. And on that way, there's something incredibly objectionable about it. But it's something I'm very much aware of, and I think I've said this before, that revenge stories are probably the most problematic thing that I love. Um, but I go into them knowing I'm not watching something real. I'm not watching a prescription for the real world. Uh, because, you know, if you are like that, if you are one of those, you know, fascists who puts a Punisher sticker with a blue stripe on your car, you are taking this shit too seriously. Mm -hmm. There is something wrong with you. You're taking it from a story like this that has fake people in a fake world who don't act like the real world. We do not want a specter in the real world. I will turn into outright J. Jonah Jameson in the real world. <laughs> um, but in the in this context, this fictional world, this is fun. It's fun to explore things. It's why you like horror. Is it, it gives you an ability to explore unpleasant emotions in a completely safe way. It's like a roller coaster. It's the escapist fantasy. It's it's, yeah. it's the escapism. It's the it's the catharsis of being able to watch this thing without consequences. It's when you start internalizing this and thinking that the message of this thing is the right way to go emotionally and physically. It's like nope. Nope, you're losing it. We're presenting it as fiction so that you don't rationalize it as, as something that should be reality. Yeah, yeah. most cops are not like Corrigan. They aren't cool guys who drive muscle cars. I'm, I'm thinking like – like expecting like his, like, um, his station house, like uh, the muster room in Homicide Life on the Street and Corrigan's yeah. thing on the whiteboard. All of his cases are still in the red. He hasn't cleared any. There are no arrests. There are no convictions. It's like just names after names of red cases that are open because his victims are disappeared or turned into inanimate objects. It's like how did he become a lieutenant? How did he get promoted? Seriously. This is how Putin deals with his enemies. <laughs> I mean it's like they just disappear one day. It's like, oh, I guess we're a well, Grandinetti family. No one ever saw them again. Huh? It's like, you know, I guess that solved itself. I mean, this guy would be under serious internal affairs investigations, like rightfully. We're like, this guy, one, he doesn't seem surprised that they've disappeared or died. <laughs> and he doesn't seem to care. And I'm like, who is this lunatic? Um, but again, I and, and again, I kind of love it because you set up Crawford as sort of the the Jack McGee to his Incredible Hulk, mm -hmm. the guy who's obsessed with it. I'm like, why do you want to play with fire like this, Crawford? You know, this <laughs> dude is a psychopath, and he seems to have limitless powers. You've seen what he did. You just this is a time to walk away. 
Mm. Or at least, you know, disappear and then start doing this under a pseudonym because this guy will come looking for you. <laughs> All right. Any final thoughts on the story before we go or the Spectre in general? Oh, no, this is my Spectre run. Um, I think I, I think this run is out of print. It, I, you might have to get it um, probably digitally because the, the edition I have of this trade paperback has the old DC Bullet logo on it. Yeah, and me too. I, I don't know if it's been reprinted as since then. So seriously, DC, get on this. Get this. Keep this in print. This is something I think a lot of people who aren't typical comic book fans would really enjoy. Yeah. A handful, like four of the issues from this run, I've actually got the individual issues. This is one of them that I do have, uh, and my copy is beat to hell. Um, so I actually do have the backup story from this one that has Aquaman, uh, written by Steve Skates with art by Mike Grell. Um, but but my copy, I'm I'm lucky that I had the trade paperback too because my copy, I'm missing pages 11 and 12. So it basically goes from Crawford is leaving the station house to go find Grandinetti, and then he's wood and he's going through the bus saw. <laughs> it's like wait, wait, I'm like reading this. I'm like, what did I just miss? Oh, I'm missing two pages. So yeah, it was a good thing that I have the trade too. Yeah, I mean, short of finding it digitally or something, this yeah, this should be reprinted. This this should always be in circulation, but. Yeah, I got I don't know what it is with uh, DC and Marvel these days, but there's a weirdly short um rotation period for some of these these collections and I'm like this stuff is great, keep it in print. Mm. I mean, we kind of live in a golden age, but sometimes it feels like if you don't grab some of this stuff right away, it goes to like 300 bucks on eBay like right away. So, yeah. Oh, come on DC. Come on. <laughs> All right, Mike, where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you in the podcastosphere? Well, uh, primarily, I work on a podcast called Radio vs. the Martians with my uh, podcasting tag team partner, Casey Doran. Uh, it's kind of like a pop culture book club where we go through this or that piece of pop culture media, whether comics, uh, TV, movies, novels, everything. We look at science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, everything. Dig it apart, look for all the, the good and the bad bits. Plus, we have a spinoff show, Podcast of La Vista Baby, where we go through every one of the movies by statesman and Austrian bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, we're probably about two-thirds of the way through that run, and hopefully after the world stops ending, we'll be able to get back going on that, because that's probably – it's the most popular thing we do, but it's also our favorite thing that we do. And you can find us at RadioVersusTheMartians.com podcastalavistababy.com and iTunes, Stitcher and all the regular places you find podcasts Alright, thank you very much highly recommend your shows as always great to talk to you uh, listeners, we are going to take another break right here, but I will be back in a moment with your feedback from the last episode stick around Hello Paul, hello I am Dr. Herfenstaffner Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? I uh, just, I just, I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is like DC events. DC events, as in the comic books. DC events. Yes, yes, the comic book events. Oh, interesting. Uh, are we we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally. That one, yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis? Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very... Invasion, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the uh, the Genesis? 
not so much. No? Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So, maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What, what, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DCOCD. What? DCOCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via a podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DCOCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. I don't think I can claim you on benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my I'll check my timetable. <laughs> cool. Alrighty, I am back with your comments on the last episode, but before we get to that, boy, that last segment felt a little bit awkward to edit, Uh, and I'll I'll peek behind the curtain for you guys. Mike and I recorded the Spectre segment back in May, uh, probably like two days after George Floyd was murdered by the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, and maybe we had heard about it by then. I don't really remember if it had, I don't want to use the word viral, but I don't remember if it had gained mainstream attention by then. Uh, for sure, by when we recorded the protests, and I should specify the most recent round of protests about police killing and police brutality against black people, none of that had started yet. So, Mike and I were still kind of in the headspace where, yeah, you know, this is all escapist fiction, and it's easy to derive entertainment out of a cop who murders people with an offensive disregard for due process, and then faces no consequences, and then spits in the face of a journalist who tries to hold him accountable. I mean, had we recorded our segment a week later than we had... I'm sure the tone and a lot of our evaluation would have been drastically different than how it sounded on this episode. In fact, I actually don't know. We we talked a little bit afterwards. I don't know if we could have recorded that segment if we hadn't already done it when we did. I don't know if Mike would have had the stomach for it, and I, I really don't think I would have. I mean, I... I can still detach myself enough from current events in culture and politics... I can separate myself from that for the purpose of reading a superhero comic about people in costumes with magic powers who fight evil robots and mad scientists, stuff like that. That kind of escapism still appeals to me. I still love it. The rogue cop genre, though, I can't. I I can't look at anything that glamorizes or fetishizes police who abuse the obscene degree of power and privilege that we as a society have given them. It's kind of revolting. So, that last Spectre segment and all of the previous installments, you'll have to listen to them as artifacts of a, uh, a different time. A time when... Tragically, black lives did not matter to people who were supposed to serve and protect. 
Anyway, moving on. If you recall on the last episode, the irredeemable Shag and I went to PJ Frightful Studio because we hadn't heard from him in six months. It looked like PJ may have gotten COVID-19, but as you heard from the beginning of this episode, PJ is back. He's fine. We don't need to recast him or anything. It's the same PJ as always. Everything is fine. Believe me. Also on that episode, I covered the three stories from House of Mystery 294, with Shag on one, Ruth and Darren Sutherland on another, and Jimmy McGlinchey on the last one. That episode got a couple of comments on the website, which you can check out at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The first comment came from Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl. Martin complimented the guests and said, The first story in the House of Mystery is really dull, but an interesting footnote is that it featured Mother Juju, who Jerry Conway had recently introduced as a supporting character in Wonder Woman. I did not know that. I didn't know that that character ever appeared in anything else, certainly not in in Wonder Woman. Uh, Martin also said, I like the third story, and how interesting that Paul Kupperberg used the name John Ostrander again as he did in Daring New Adventures of Supergirl. There, it's an actor. Here, it's a judge, although his first name is reduced to an initial, presumably so it doesn't clash with the name of our protagonist. But why not give him a different name? Maybe there's a real-life John Bates, too? Uh, Martin also said, I always liked George Tuska, and while the effect is great, it's still a shame to see Tony DiZaniga wipe out his fingerprint. I'm not sure I agree with you there, Martin. Well, I definitely think the art looks more like DiZaniga than Tuska, absolutely. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. That's, That's just me. Uh, And Martin ended with, get well soon, PJ Frightful. Well, as you heard, he is well and sounds perfectly normal the same way he always does. The next comment from Chris Franklin from here on the Fire and Water Network. Chris said, I'll check the house of Frankenstein to see if PJ, Pope James, wow, has been squatting there again. He usually doesn't try it until September, but since he's under the weather, he may have gotten desperate. I'm sure it's nothing to worry about, though. Uh, He's fine, as you heard. And yeah, Pope James. Uh, Chris said, Love the Yates artwork in the second story. Man, talk about an underappreciated artist. Always great to hear Darren and Ruth, and thanks to the Rad team for their kind words on House of Franklinstein. I totally got a Kramer vs. Kramer vibe just looking at the pages of the third story, and boy, do Zuniga's inks really transform Tuska's pencils into mystery title readiness. Kind of wish someone had done the same on the Infantino story. Jimmy is always a pleasure to hear on the network as well. I'm sure he appreciates that, and yeah, totally agree with those. Um, Brian Linton said of the first story, The Darkness... I think a better ending would have been for the lights to go out and for Kingley to feel the hand on his shoulder, leave it up to the reader to decide if he meets an untimely end or if he inherits the curse for the rest of his life. That would have been interesting. And on the last story, uh, congratulations, Mr. Bates, it's a warlock, Brian said, A society of witches and warlocks that exists unseen beside our own, complete with their own healthcare system? That sounds like the wizarding world of Harry Potter. I can already imagine future installments of this story where John Jr., JJ to his friends, attends Hogwarts with his teddy dad in tow. Call me crazy, but I'm guessing he'll be sorted into Slytherin. You know what? As long as he's not transgender, he shouldn't have a problem. 
Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey, who appeared on the last episode, commented on the other two stories that he didn't help me review. He said, hopefully there won't be as long of a delay for the next Midnight Podcast to come out, but given that you and Shag had crossed paths with where PJ Frightful had been, I am feeling the worst. Given the number of podcasts that you and Shag interact with, the contract tracing is going to take forever. I know, we spread it everywhere. The Fire and Water Network is a super spreader. And finally, Siskoid from this network said, I feel like the witch and warlock culture here is right out of Bewitched or Sabrina. I assume he's referring to the witch culture in the third story and not here on the Fire and Water website or anything else. Uh, as for his description, I confess I have very little exposure to Bewitched or Sabrina. I've never watched them. I know I know kind of about them and, and some of the tropes, but yeah, I never watched them, so I can't agree or refute that statement. Uh, And that's going to wrap up this episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. A quick little note and plug, despite what I said about finding it difficult to discuss the Spectre stories on this podcast in light of recent events, the stories themselves are still classic and awesome to look at. And even though the issues are hard to find and the reprint trade paperback is no longer in print, DC is supposed to be releasing a hardcover collection called The Wrath of the Spectre Omnibus. That looks like it's going to cover all of the Spectre's Silver and Bronze Age adventures. You can look for that in August or September, I believe. Possible it'll be pushed back. Okay, that's it. I will see you next month for a Swamp Thing Spectacular episode covering not one, not two, but three issues of Swamp Thing. Until then, here is the canned outro with PJ Frightful doing the contact and Patreon info. And yes, it's the same voice as at the beginning of this episode. I'm telling you, same voice, same guy. It's all good. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can also support Midnight, the podcasting hour, and the Fire and Water Network on Patreon. Special thanks to all of our generous supporters who keep this show alive. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and have a good...